Well, I'm excited for us to be in the book of 1 John together. Last time we were in John 3, now we're in 1 John 3, the same author, different portions of where we are in terms of the New Testament, same author, same chapter, different book. Um, And so uh, I'm going to give you an idea of why we're looking at this. Uh, We finished the book of Galatians a little bit ago. We're getting ready to soon move into another book. Last time, I wanted us to take a look from Jesus Himself that the themes of Galatians are actually echoes of Jesus Himself. That Paul wasn't coming up with anything new. And I hope that we saw that together. In fact, I hope that last time as we looked at John chapter 3, as we looked at the encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, a religious leader there in Jerusalem... That we saw these incredibly challenging words from Jesus Himself. I mean, at all, most of the passages rebuke as He tells Nicodemus that salvation, that Christian life is not something that comes about by natural means. It is a supernatural work of God. And in so doing, what I hope we saw is that Paul's argument in Galatians is nothing more than an echo of that point. Exactly what Paul is arguing in Galatians is exactly what Jesus was telling to uh, Nicodemus. As Paul used harsh language to the Galatian believers who were seeking the law to legitimize their salvation. They were trying to give a natural account for why they were now the way they were. And Paul's argument the entire time is, there is no natural account. You're the way you are because God worked. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying to John. Um, A new life is a new life because God began it. In like manner, I thought it would be good for us to take a look at one of the original apostles, John, writing... Now, a few decades after when Galatians was written. So if you have John, the book of John, or sorry, let me say that again. If you have the encounter represented by John chapter 3 between Jesus and Nicodemus, you'd have it at this point, very first. Then you would have some years later the book of Galatians written. And now, about the equal distance from there, you would have the book of 1 John written by the Apostle John to a group of believers. And if what we saw in John 3 was Jesus explaining how this new life begins, what I'm hoping you're going to see in 1 John 3 is John describing how to live it. And that's really helpful because at that point in time, you're looking at the Apostle John on the earth in terms of spirit-wrought, empowered believers after Christ, he's one of the most experienced there is. He walked with Jesus. And it's really helpful, and I'm hoping you'll find it helpful this morning, to hear John explain what does this life now look like. I found it very helpful. In particular, I'm hoping that what you will hear clearly coming out from the Apostle John is that Those to whom God has given new life, those who are believers, are now a peculiar people. That is why we learn from Jesus in the encounter with Nicodemus that believers are those into whom God has birthed new life. Here we will hear from John a first-hand account of what the new life looks like. 
In particular, we're going to hear John describe those as born again as living in a very awkward state. Let me say that again. We're going to hear the Apostle John describing those who are now born again as living in a very awkward state. Let me put this a little bit more simple, plainly. My goal this morning is for you to hear straight from Scripture, if you are in Christ... You're weird. Let me say that again. I can't get any more plain as that. I want you to hear straight from Scripture. If you are in Christ, you are weird. And whatever you do, don't you dare get over it. Get into it. You're weird. Don't try to get over it. Get into it. Now that's got to make you feel good that the next little bit of your life is going to be spent to a guy trying to convince you of your weirdness. Um, But I got a feeling that you all that know me as well as you do are not going to be offended by that because you've got a weird person saying it to you. So being called weird by one who's weird makes it feel not so weird. All right, maybe. I don't know. so here we are in verse 1. We're going to see is Paul, I mean is Paul, is John, man I'm all over the place. i got Paul, John, Jesus, they're going to get mixed up. It's God who wrote it all, so maybe that will make me feel better. Verse 1. See. There's some of your translations there are going to have, behold. Some of them are going to even go further. Behold what manner. See what kind of love. There's a hard stop there in 3.1. When he says see, it is as if he... I want you to feel him saying, stop, just stop and look. That's what he's doing. It's like a person giving you a tour of a building and just saying, now stop, just stop, stop, stop. Look. That, that's what we get there with the word see or behold. Look. Look at what, John? Look at what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. John, also known as the disciple whom Jesus, you can probably fill in the blank, loved, writes to his fellow believers that they should stop and look at the love that the Father has shown to, his, to us in calling us what? Children of God. There's at least four or five things I want us to see as we look at this. Don't run past this. This isn't just a hallmark greeting card moment. This is deep doctrine in the midst of practical living. That's what you get when you get John writing. John drops the deepest doctrine in the midst of gutsy living than any writer I've seen in Scripture. It's really amazing. First, Remember who the Father is. The Father is God Almighty. He's the perfect, holy, all-knowing, all-wise, fully controlling God of the universe. So that's the Father when He says, Behold, or look at what love who? The Father has given. So when you hear Father there, think God Almighty Himself. First point. Now remember, as much as we need to remember who the Father is, remember who the us, the we are. We are rebels. 
According to Scripture, we are rebels who have on countless occasions denied God His rightful place. There's a we here. There's an inclusive. Tim is very much included in this. We've transgressed His law. We've treated people and things that are not God's like they actually themselves get the place where God gets. In short of His intervention, we have shown no desire to stop or change our course. That's the Father, and that's us. Third, remember what the calling of family is for the Jewish context. Family identity in the Jewish context means everything. So when it says here, what love the Father has called, has shown us in calling us, now, my, my son Asher, he likes a lot of um, stuffed animals. Um, he actually right now likes a couple of dolls, and that's going to be fine. He's going to get right over that, say the psychologist. So anyway, um, he, uh, he, 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 we have to name everyone. Here's the deal. There's no rhyme or reason behind this. There's none. I promise you there's no meaning. We can't even get to rhyme or reason, right? Fred, there we go, right? That, that's, how, that's how these things get named. Names in our culture would look as silly, the way that we treat names in our culture, look as silly to the way that the Jewish context treats names and family calling as the way we look at how Asher does. It meant so much to them. You didn't have a last name if you were a Jew. You didn't have a last name. It wasn't like he was Jesus with some last name. Though many think his last name is Christ, but that's a different story, right? Is is his last name would have been his name would have been Jesus Bar Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph. That's his name. My name would be Tim Bar Charles, Tim son of Charles. By the way, I laugh. Shankar was this way. He got to America. He has to fill out stuff, and they're asking him for his last name. He's going, I don't have a last name. Well, what's your last name going to be? He said, hmm, I'll take my dad's name. So you'll laugh. We, we treat them like their name or the Selvarages. Selvaraj is just his dad's name, right? It's like somebody calling Heather now the Charleses. Um, that, that's how it is. But that's the same way it was in the Jewish context. Whoever your father was is who you are. And that's why you can get so much when it says Jesus, Son of God. <laughs> Enough said, period, in the sentence. We get who He is. When John writes that we are now called children of God, what he's saying is your identity has been completely moved and set anew. You're now a, children, a child of God. Everything changes. That's who you now are. And so, we, we see this, and yet there's something really odd about it. Think about what I just said. Think of those three points. The identity matters a ton. And yet, we now have the Father, God Almighty, perfect, holy. And we have us, rebels, content to, to defame His name. And we're called children of God? Either the Father is okay with having His name muddled in disrepute, or something major has to change. 
Because there's no way we can be called children of God without shaming the very name of God. I feel like a Jewish reader really would have picked up on that just even reading it. Oh, behold, the love the Father has on calling us children of God. But something's got to give. Keep reading. Remember further what it means for God to call someone or something. Theologians say this, when God calls, He always calls effectually. When God calls, He always calls effectually. And that's a big way of saying whomever or whatever God calls always responds the way God desires. We see this well established in the very first sentences of the Bible. God says, let there be light. He calls light forth. And what do we get? And there was light. God calls Abraham in the very opening chapters of Genesis. And when He calls... Abraham goes. When God calls the thing or the person whom He calls always responds. So when it says here that we are now called children of God, it's not simply a descriptor about us, though it is, and that's a huge deal. But it's further than that. He's saying we are now children of God because He called. When God calls, it happens. He calls us out of our rebellion into life as His children. And we respond for one reason and one alone. Because He called. And now that's why John says, what love the Father displayed that He calls us as children of God. That's why I love the end of the sentence. And i got to tell you, there are sometimes NIV we've looked at. I've said, if you got NIV, you're going to miss this here. There's times I said, if you got the SV, you're going to miss this here. If you got the KJV, the King James Version, or the New King James Version, unfortunately, you missed this here. They leave it out. They leave the end of this sentence out. Now, they have reason to do so. I don't think it's good reason. But they have reason to do so. But I wish they'd have included it. Because it says there... And so we are. Almost every other translation is going to have something like that. And so we are. There's two little words in Greek. I love that. Because I think it's exactly what John is after. It it says, and so we are. That sounds a whole lot like, and God said, let there be light. And what? And so there was light. I think there's a deep comparison here. God called us children of God, and so we are. When God calls, His people respond. And so at the end of this sentence, three things we need to see. The most important thing to be known about us is that we are those who are called the children of God. Oh, brother and sister, write that on your heart. There is no other fact about you that matters anything like the fact that you can be called a child of God. Our response to that is to stop and wonder, Behold! Look at the love. As if John is saying, Hear it and don't forget it. And yet, 
We are a rebellious, broken lot, and He's a holy God. So something has to change. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you've not repented of your sin, you've not trusted in Christ as your only hope for salvation, I invite you today to turn from your rebellion and answer the call of a loving Father to come home. As you listen to the rest of the sermon, you're going to be listening as an outsider because this is written to believers. But as you listen as one outside looking in, I want you to realize those who are in have done nothing of their own accord to get there. They're lost souls to whom God has shown favor. And you in repentance can enjoy it as well. Alright, that's the end of the first sentence. We'll begin with the second sentence of verse 1. Courtney said to me, um, how are you going to preach that long on three verses? I think you're getting an idea now. You're, you're just like, man, that's not a problem. All right. um, I've never heard anybody challenge me to preach longer. Um, so. I hear that and I raise you one, brother. All right. Um, this sentence. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Man, this shook me up. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. Now, John is doing something we call begging some questions here. That is, if you said, this is an example. If you said to me, so Tim, you like being a moron. Alright, say you come up to me and say, so Tim, you like being a moron. Now, on the surface of it, you are simply asking me about my taste about something, right? Just like, so you like tomatoes? No, right? You're asking, so you like being a moron. But I'm not so thick, believe it or not, that I can not see that you're saying a couple other things. You've made some assumptions there, right? Such as, you're a moron, right? Uh, and some assumptions like, you know you're a moron. And now you're just asking me, do you enjoy that, right? Well, in many ways, this is a sentence that begs some questions. John says the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it does not know Him, but he's begged a lot of questions and there's a ton of great truth in those assumptions. First, it begs the question, so John, you don't think the world knows us? You don't think the world understands us? Man, that's a helpful point. The only way that makes sense is if John thinks the world doesn't know us or understand us. Otherwise, that does not make sense. He doesn't think the world knows us or understands us. That's an assumption John makes because to his audience, it's a fair assumption. How do we know that? We know that because in the very second chapter, we hear John having to deal with the fact that there are those who are of the church who are no longer of the church because when persecution came, they said, forget it, I'm out. And by the way, Paul's or, <laughs> telling me it's going to happen the entire time. I'm preaching an epistle and it's not Paul. Um, John says, what do we make of that? We make of that they were not genuine believers. Genuine believers will persevere. It's one of the most helpful passages on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in, in 1 John 2. But what's the, why do I say that? 
I say that to say they were experiencing persecution. And when the persecution came, it became a test to see about their genuine faith. To use our analogy from last time. There was a positive pregnancy test in their life, their spiritual life, that said, there seems to be life here. Then persecution came, and they said, no, there really isn't. It's a false positive. There really isn't life here. John just assumes that we understand that our world does not know us, and our world does not understand us. That is, that our world finds our way of living both unreasonable and inexplicable. I think that's helpful. I think it's helpful because as believers living in the southeastern part of the United States in the year 2014, although we don't currently find ourselves in a context akin to that of John's, that is where there's persecution and oddities, We're not there yet, but that's not to say we won't get there. Put the point this way. Let's say I ask you this question. Does it feel strange to be a believer? Here's a question. Does it feel strange for you to be a believer living in the triad area of North Carolina in the year 2014? Does it feel strange to be a believer living in the triad area of North Carolina in the year 2014? Now take that question, you got the question, and just change one part. What about if I would ask it, say, in the year 1974? How about we change just one part of that question and ask the same question for somebody in the year 1934? Does it feel strange, I'm asking somebody in the year 1934, to be a believer living in the triad area of North Carolina in the year 1934? I think as we go up, we would find something like this. In the year 1934, the response would have probably been, no, absolutely not. It doesn't feel strange to be a Christian believer living here. Go 40 years later. I think in, the, in 1974, the general response would have been, nah, not really. And then if you ask somebody in the year 2014, 40 years later, I think the response would be something like, well, maybe, maybe. Well, just watch that progression. 40, 40, 40. Go 40 more years. Go 2054. Folks, I don't think it's at all outlandish. In fact, I think the trend seems to indicate that the response in 2054 is going to be yes, absolutely. It feels really strange. I find that personally a very helpful point. Especially since I'm raising children who I pray will be around in 2054. Right? That's a helpful point. I think this verse gives us hope. I think this verse gives us hope because even though our cultural context may be very different, even though it may feel very strange to be a believer in that context, isn't it helpful to know that the very first believers, like John, when he wrote, wrote out of a context a lot more like that than he did our context now? That is, even if there is persecution, that will look a lot more like it used to look when the church was birthed than it does now. In other words, we have no reason to worry that the Christian church will not still be around. In fact, it was out of that context that it was birthed. I hear that and I say, 
Praise God! He's got it under control. Now that's one question he begged. He begs another question. We said it begs a question of, so they don't know us, they don't understand us, but it also begs another question. On the flip side, so you're saying they didn't, you're assuming they did not know him. The only way that makes sense, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him, is if it's true that they they did not know him. (laughs) This is really interesting to think about from... John's perspective this week. As the song was saying, the power of the cross and envisioning that, see, that that wouldn't take much for John. John was there when they arrested our Lord. John was there when they beat Him. He stood by the cross comforting the mother of our Lord as her naked son was brutally tortured for our sin and for John's sin. John watched as the body was carried away. You don't have to convince John that the world does not know Christ or love Him. He gets it. And I have to tell you, that was really helpful for me personally this week. I don't know if it would be helpful for you or not, but this is about me. Um, so, therefore, we'll go for that. It is helpful for me because I have to be quite honest, that wasn't an obvious point to me as I thought through it. That is, I honestly can't tell you that I would say on the forefront that the world doesn't know or like Jesus. Or further, that they hate Jesus. That's exactly what this text is saying. You're saying, it takes John to tell you that? Jesus himself said they, he, they hate him. Well, it was helpful in John this week, okay? That is, I often believe, whether I like it to admit it or not, that the world thinks highly of Jesus. Or if Jesus showed up, that he would be popular. But folks, that simply isn't true. The world today is no less sinful than the world in the first century. If I can't get an amen this morning on anything else, I think I get an amen on that, right? Well, how did the world in the first century treat Jesus? They murdered Him. You know what they did to Him. The world today does not value Jesus. If He showed up today, He wouldn't win a Nobel Prize. Good for Him. He wouldn't be voted into office. Good for Him. He would be brutally murdered and maimed. That's what our world would do to Jesus if He showed up. They would murder Him and maim Him and treat Him like a criminal. The unbelieving world hates Jesus. Whether they realize it or not, Jesus Himself stood us up for this when He said in Luke 11 and in Matthew 12, whoever is not with me is what? Against me. Folks, especially students and young adults, please hear this point. The secular culture, whose movies we quote, whose music we recite, whose dress we mimic, they hate Jesus our Lord. The one whom we treasure is the greatest gift we could ever have or receive. They solid despise. 
And John assumes we know that. That was very helpful for my heart this week. What are you doing watching them as if they can teach you something? They hate the treasure of your heart. Man, that was helpful for my heart. But don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we should hate our culture. I'm not saying we should avoid our culture and go run and start a colony somewhere. First of all, because I don't even know how to grow food. I'm not saying we should just isolate ourselves. To do so would be abandonment of the very mission Jesus said when He says, He looked at us and He said, they hate you. Now go reach them. But it's helpful to be reminded that the world at large does not value Jesus. That's a very helpful point. Now returning to the sentence, we'll actually look at the point John's making. Um, You're becoming more convinced, aren't you, Courtney? All right. Um, The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know Him. That's what John says. If you're the children of God, in whom the Spirit has grown a genuine affection for Jesus, the reason the world does not understand you, does not embrace you, is it did not understand or embrace your Lord. That is, when your life is so centered on making Jesus look like a limitless treasure, a secular world will not understand it. You will not make sense to this world. (laughs) This is a good point of application. Does your life make sense to a secular world? Or are your priorities, especially seen in how you spend your money and your time, so different from your unbelieving friends that they look at you and think you are weird? (laughs) You probably never thought you'd be commanded this way from the pulpit. But you're being commanded from the pulpit, from the Word of God, be weird. Be weird. That is the clear command from this, or application from this Scripture. You better be weird. Otherwise, you're going to read that and go, huh? But if you're weird, you read, read that and go, that's right, that's right, I got it, that's right, that's right, got it. Right? Verse 2. Beloved. <laughs> Love the one whom Jesus loved calling us beloved. That's just cool. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. After reminding us that we are God's, that the love, the love that God has shown us in making us children, and after reminding us that the world finds us weird because it found Jesus weird, He now says, Beloved, ones that are loved, we are God's children. And the truth be told, exactly what we look like, we don't even know. (laughs) I love that. The reason they don't love you is because they don't love Him. And I don't even know what we are. (laughs) That's great. So he speaks in terms of what we will be. The only way you can speak in terms of what somebody will be is if it makes that make any sense is if their current state is going to change. Right? Otherwise you wouldn't be talking about what they will be. You'll just talk be talking about what they are because it's not changing. 
But he's talking here about what we will be, so he must assume something's going to change. Like a baby growing in a womb, so are we in the womb of the Spirit, the children of God being grown. And there are massive changes happening, and there should be. Brother or sister, beloved, you are in utero of the Spirit. I remember through Heather's pregnancy, she um, would tell me on different days and weeks, uh, this is what happened uh, to the baby this week. I mean, it'd be things like, well, she, she grew uh, fingernails today, or uh, her pupils were formed. Um, <laughs> by the way, I always remember feeling so unproductive when I'd hear that. Like, so what did you do with your day? Because, you know, our baby didn't have fingernails at the beginning of the day, and today does. How do you look at yours? I lost some hair, added to my waistline. I just felt very unproductive. The point is, from the moment of conception until the human life, you actually, it's birth, there are massive, massive changes happening all the time. If you feel awkward as a believer, like, man, how can I be so caught up in the Spirit and right on with worship one moment and acting like a foolish knucklehead in my sin on the other? You're being changed. You used to not have eyeballs, and now you do. You're being changed. And it's weird. I remember um, when... Uh, we went in for ultrasounds. They now have this new technology. They call it 4D ultrasound technology. Um, and Heather and I went uh, to, or Heather went to, and I tagged along to a uh, high-risk pregnancy center. So they they take pictures of everything, which we thought was great. And they said, "Oh, the very first pregnancy, I was I I, I didn't know anything, so I'm all I'm all about this. We're going to show you 4D ultrasounds now. 4D, I, by the way, I'm not going to start on why they call it 4D. That's a very bad way to call it. That makes no sense. But anyway, they mean by that that they can show you things they didn't see. Anyway, we're going to leave that alone. Um, uh, but they call it 4D. It's here's my assessment. It is really cool technology. Two. I would have been fine to stick with the regular. Why? Because a baby in utero looks like a freaky alien. Seriously, if you've ever seen a 4D picture, it looks like E.T. after a bar fight. It's awful. I I thought about this for my poor daughter. You know, one day she's going to be saying to to us, sorry dad, I didn't have time to put makeup on, and I'm going to have to say to her, it's okay, I saw you before eyeballs. Right? You don't have to worry about no eyeliner. I know what it looks like I not have eyes. And it ain't pretty, sister, right? Why? Well, they look weird. Only person can like a picture of a 4D ultrasound is a mom, dad, and grandparents. Anybody else says, oh gosh, not before dinner, right? Guess what? Spiritually, that's how we are right now. We look weird. We're kind of the point. If heaven looks in, they go, not before dinner, right? We cannot wait to see what they're going to be like, but right now it's not so pretty. But praise God, there's a heartbeat. That's how I left it every time. When they would move to the 4D, I'd say, can I hear the heartbeat? Right? There's a heartbeat. There used to not be life. And now there's life. Embrace that. 
You are weird. You are awkward. And God brought life. And He is going to bring it to completion. How do I know that? Look at the second half of this verse. Bring it, John. But we know that when He appears, we're going to be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. He says, yeah, you look weird now. But there's coming a day when weird will not be the adjective. Beautiful, gloriously beautiful will be the adjective. Whose bride are you? And all of heaven will say, His and His alone. And He purchased us at a beautiful price. That's what John is saying. We will be able... So we're going to be beautiful. How do we know it? Because we're going to be able to look at Jesus with unveiled faces. You recall one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. When Moses asked to see God. A very bold request. I mean, I'm still amazed by the man's boldness. A couple of priests get the, get the sacrifice a little bit wrong and they're, not, they're gone, Right? And, and Moses says, I'd kind of like to see you. And what does God say? No problem, here I am. He makes him do what? He makes him stand behind a rock. Now, if you don't realize that the Scriptures are saying something about where humanity stands and who they are in their beauty compared to God, when God makes us stand behind a rock? I mean, imagine if a couple had met online. Never had seen, you know, they, they exchange pictures. And one of them says to the other, you know, I'd finally like to meet you. And he writes back and says, I would be fine to meet you, but do you mind standing behind a rock? i got a funny feeling that's not going to be a long-term relationship for them, right? They're not equals. That's the whole point of what God says. Get your rear end behind a rock. You can't look at my glory. And John has the audacity to say there's coming a day when you're going to see Him, but he doesn't just finish it like that. He says you're going to see Him what? As He is. You're going to look at Him. No rock in between you. You are going to look at Him face to face and you're going to be beautiful enough that it will be allowed. Yes, you look awkward now. But you are going to be gloriously beautiful. And as we looked at our Sunday School Christian Growth Group lesson this morning, I don't know about you, but it's rare. It takes a lot of prayer and a lot of thinking to stand in the presence of God and already feel unexposed and unashamed. I can get there. I have to picture the cross a whole, whole lot. But there's coming a day when you'll walk into the presence of God and brother or sister, you are going to feel fully exposed and unashamed. Isn't that awesome? There he is. Here I am. That's coming. Okay? So we should stop and be amazed that we are the children of God. We should realize that this means we live in an awkward, weird state and our culture does not get us. And we have great hope that we will not stay this way long. That's the takeaways I've gotten so far. Well, that leads to a natural question. So, Brother John, what do we do in the meantime? Or maybe, 
A different way of putting it, how do we live while in utero? That's the point of verse 3. The sentence is structured like a coach who says, everyone who hopes to win the championship will practice hard. Everyone who hopes to win the championship will practice hard. Verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. And I picture a coach saying here, everyone who wants to win the championship will practice hard. couple of things. In other words, filter out everything that contaminates your single-minded affection and devotion to God and His glory. Filter out everything that contaminates your single-minded affection for God and His glory. Why? Because that's who Christ is. Christ is, was, always will be purely, squarely, unreservedly focused on the glory of God. Christian, what in your life is not focused on the glory of God? Stop and think. What has you distracted from the eternal weight of the glory awaiting you? Stop and consider that. There's so many distractions. It could be lost of the flesh. It may be that you're not carefully weighing the influence of this culture that doesn't find Jesus as valuable. Maybe you're not looking at how you're spending your time, your money, and your joy. It may be that you are focused on your own glory, your own name, your own desires. It may be that the very gifts of God are distracting you. A spouse, a child, a career, a clean house, a nice yard, athletics, a a healthy body. Church, what is distracting us? How might we be purely focused on treasuring the greatness of God together? That's the practice hard part. If you want to win the championship, you practice hard. If we, if, if we want to have this hope, then we purify ourselves. We look at our lives and say, what doesn't fit? Where's the extra? Cut it out. But when the coach says, everyone who wants to win the championship practices hard, he's not simply commending the team to practice hard. But he's also telling them, put your mind on the goal of the championship. That is, a good coach realizes it doesn't take long for a team to get centered on other things. Before you know it, they're thinking about, by the way, anytime I move to sports, like I know what I'm talking about, be wary. Anyway, now I'm moving on like I know what I'm talking about. As soon as the season starts, it becomes very easy for the team to say, yeah, championship, we know that, but what about my playing time? Or what about the stats? Or what about the other teams? Or what about the fact that we don't like the way the coach is running the offense? Or what about... That's all I got. Anyway, the point is, you get the, you get the point. It's easy to get distracted in the actual goal, stop being the actual goal. So John says, purify yourselves, but remember the goal. 
everyone who hopes in Him. Hope in Him, brother or sister. Bank your trust on Him. Fully. Let Him be so big He cannot fail. That is, make it so that if Christ fails to be who He's promised to be, your life was a waste. That's what John is saying. Because, by the way, if Christ fails to be what He says He was going to be, John's life is an utter joke. It makes no sense. That is, you want to look like the biggest fool if Jesus isn't who He's promised. Oh, I would love that to be the description of my life. I would love that to be the description of students' lives. Their life is a joke if Christ fails to be who said. But man, if He's even half of what He says, their life makes a ton of sense. In conclusion, let us thank God. Let's stop and behold together the amazing love the Father has shown on us that we might be called the children of God. Let us realize that means there got to be some changes. The we that He called will no longer be the we that He called. Praise God. So let us embrace the awkward moments. Let's embrace the awkward state. And let's look forward to eternity. Let's talk about eternity a lot. Let's talk about who we're going to be a lot. Let us seek to purify our lives of anything that contaminates our love of Christ. And let us daily, actively bank and trust our hope that Christ is who He says He's going to be.